we worked with the CBC, we had 33,000 post engagements from voters in Georgia on like posts we had pushed. And I was like, what if we sent a message to all 33,000 people? And they probably have never received anything from the CBC ever, but it would be the first time they did. And you like said, who knows what type of rich engagement you can unlock. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Brandon Harris, who is the CEO and founder of VOTUS, a company that helps organizations like the DCCC and the Sierra Club build community with their supporters online across multiple social networks. They're now part of the Higher Grounds Lab portfolio. We spoke about how Brandon's career moved out of the legal world and into political technology entrepreneurship and about his search for the right business model. It's a good conversation. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Brandon Harris with VOTUS. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Brandon, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Hello, my name is Brandon Harris. I am the CEO of VOTUS Incorporated. Um, VOTUS is a political tech startup um, dedicated to helping organizations talk and listen to their communities across multiple channels. I am originally from Memphis, Tennessee. I attended Howard University for undergrad and then went to law school at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Well, I read somewhere that you were the student body president at Howard for two terms, which was like the first time that had happened. Is that correct? That is, that is correct. Quite the, quite the experience. <laughs> Why did you decide to run for that particular office and how did you win it and what was it like in that role? It was great. In high school, I was always in like NAACP and kind of got the political book started in high school. So you go to Howard, which is really this supercharged political environment, right? You think about like Kamala Harris, like Thurgood Marshall. So it's it's kind of in the blood, in the water to be involved in student government. And so was able to kind of get involved. And then sophomore year, ended up running for student body president, which was kind of a big deal because people were like, you're kind of not waiting your turn. And in some crazy turn of events, I ended up running unopposed. I was able to kind of get a guy to be our vice president who was actually a law student, which most people don't understand at Howard. The student body represents the graduate schools and the undergrad. So I had like this kind of old statesman. We kind of thought of ourselves as like Barack and Joe Biden at the time. It was right around 08, 09. So it was like, <laughs> you know, new vision meets experience perspective and ended up running for that. One thing we did um, that really was a big impact was we created a program called Houston Grants. And to give you some perspective, I got elected in 2010. This is like we're still kind of dealing with the Great Recession. 
in a historically black college and university. So there are a lot of students more than usual who can't pay to stay in school. And so we created a grant program um, called Houston Grants, which was basically would pay students. You know, if you had up to six thousand dollars that was keeping you away from school, we basically would give you the grant in return for some form of community service, which obviously was kind of like my first foray into UBI. I didn't really realize that's what I was getting into, but we did that and it was a huge thing. And it was it really showed me how you can really impact people's lives through policy because I had students who would like leave me like give like not gift cards, but like write a thank you card, like, hey, thanks because of you, I'm able to like stay in school. I ended up pledging a fraternity and one of my fraternity brothers received a Houston grant. And so that was kind of really formative for me. And I think the other thing about being Houston president at Howard is you're just going to meet a ton of people. I remember getting like basically destroyed by Roland Martin on a panel when I was like a junior in college because he was like, you don't know what you're talking about, but you're in these spaces. You're kind of with political legacy, right? In terms of the black America. So you're able to get exposed to that, meet a ton of people. And it really just for me at the time, it just solidified that I wanted to be a politician. I just thought, oh, I'm going to like, I was student body president here and I'm going to be like Kamal or Kasim Reed. And like, I went back to Vanderbilt, I went to Vanderbilt because I was like, I'm going to go home in Memphis and be mayor. It was like, it kind of really was, was a huge moment for me. But I think the two things I'll send up is like, you know, you never know what you can accomplish. I think there were a lot of things we didn't think we would get done when I got elected. But it was weird because I was, I ran on the poll, so there was no excitement for me. And people actually thought I was going to do like a really bad job. So I had this like chip on my shoulder, like, oh, we have to actually do stuff. Right. But when you start, you know, helping, you know, students stay in school and we did we had a protest at the White House for Troy Davis. My um, senior year where like we had like 12 students get arrested at the White House, which was like this crazy thing. And it was it was on the news on MSNBC. And it just was it was just a different time. But I think. I learned that when you work with groups of people, do not doubt the things you can accomplish, because a lot of times as a leader and especially at Howard, it really wasn't about me. It was about how can I like just bring what the students are to the surface? Because you have this dynamic group of individuals and you're like, you know, they're going to protest without me. They're going to burn this thing down without me. So how can I actually channel this (laughs) and make this constructive? And I think we were able to do that. So I think one thing I was actually disappointed in as I got older was student government was, you know, in working with Howard students, I think was actually a lot more constructive than uh, my experience in real politics thus far. <laughs> and so trying to uh, balance those things, but it, it definitely changed me. And I think anytime you make history in a place like Howard, it's kind of like, whoa, like now I have to do even more when I leave. Were you opposed for your second term? I was opposed for my second term, but I won with like 80% of the vote, which was cool. I actually ran against a, a party promoter, this guy who was not in student government at all. And so it was like this weird, crazy juxtaposition of this guy. I remember I had a friend tweet, there are no VIP tables in financial aid. And it got like all these retweets because it was like, this guy's a party promoter. He's trying to use that that side. So I did run opposed then, but you know, luckily it, it wasn't very close. Had you come from a family that was political? No, not at all. So my parents were both first generation college students. Um, My mom is very politically aware, very, very conscious, but never really ran for office. And my dad, he's more of a corporate guy. So I think for him, like we actually had to make a deal when I went to college, I majored in political science. And the deal I made with him was that I would guarantee I would go to law school. 
He was like, I'm only going to let you major in political science if you commit to going to law school. So it was, you know, that was kind of, it shaped me because my parents were super political, but they understood the need for community. They understood how it benefited their lives, right? And so I was kind of like the first in my family to really try to go after that. But I think it gave me, I don't know, it made me relatable. Like I was able to relate to adore people because I didn't come from some type of like political dynasty. <laughs> Did you like uh, law school at Vanderbilt? Did you enjoy it? Law school was different than what I expected. You know, I think, you know, when you're in student government at Howard, you're like, oh, we're going to go to law school. We're going to be talking about the state of the world and what, you know, what we can do to solve these problems. And I got there and it was like, you're going to get a job at big law. And it was crazy because I was like thinking I was going to go on the corporate, the you know, public interest track. And the courses I liked the most in law school were corporate law classes. I like got the highest grade in my like fed tax class. And I was like, what is going on? And it was kind of funny, but what I found in law school, what became kind of my passion was VOTUS. I kind of got to law school. And I was like, I don't really want to do like the student government thing again. I've already done that. And I started reading some books around politics and technology. And it just really was like, what is going on here? And so I actually started the company my second year of law school. So once I started VOTUS, I kind of was like, let me take classes in law school that are related to technology or related to something that can help me with my tech company. So it gave me also a different perspective. You know, when I'm looking at mergers and acquisitions, like maybe my own company eventually would be getting acquired or merging or something like that. The startups helped inform my law school experience to make it make it a little better. My experience is that whenever you're learning something intellectual, that if you can tie it to something practical, it's so much more meaningful. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, I think, I mean, we experienced that because it was a class called Law 2050, which is actually about how is technology going to impact the law and like what are, and even like in politics, how are these things going to unite? We talked about privacy before we kind of got to Cambridge Analytica and things like that. And so definitely like using that, I, I think really helped. And it was funny because like I said, I thought I was going to be doing public interest. And I was like, these public interest courses aren't as big as a help to me in this endeavor. It's not that they're not interesting, but it's like, you know, if I'm trying to run a business and figure out how to navigate this, making something tangible, you know, makes it, um, it makes you work harder, I think, for sure. What's the founding story there? Was it you and a co-founder? Did you have other people at the start? What was the initial idea? Yeah, so... <laughs> The initial idea was just to be more of its own app, right? And we kind of shifted now to more of a SaaS communication platform. But I, I was thinking, you know, there needs to be a platform dedicated to politics because I didn't think social media was the right fit. And I tweeted this one day and a good friend of mine from Howard who we're really bonded by, we're both political animals and they kind of bonded us. So I tweeted this out and he responds like, let's do it. And then we became co-founders. It's kind of like the crazy story. And it was in like, um, 20, I think that was in the fall of 2012. And so we just started kind of brainstorming, talking through, getting things on paper. And then there was someone who's not really a part of the company anymore who from law school, who we were working with um, for a couple of years. And so we just started to, you know, put together, you know, what we thought would be kind of like this 21st century platform for democracy. Like now I look back on it, like so naive, right? Like not really understanding how hard it is to build these products or like what it takes to get people to a centralized political digital network. But I think that, um, you know, it kind of started like this, like we're going to build, 
you know, and then we're really for more local politics. I've always felt like local is where the action's at. Um, and I think part of the reason where our national politics is we're too high level all the time and we can't connect the dots. And so we were like, let's build a network for that. And and that just sent us on this kind of long quest for, I think, a year of trying to build. And, and we got a designer to come on to help us kind of like scope out and build a, a basically a, a social network platform. It was really, really going to be like a kind of a social network platform. And then it became pre- very clear, though, while in law school, while doing that, that this is not the solution that we need to build an MVP and try to get some traction. And so the first product we really released while I was in law school was this thing called the V score, where you would take a quiz. You can invite your Facebook friends to also take the quiz. And it would tell you how politically aligned you were, which um, wasn't really the most successful things because people do not want to talk about politics with their friends, but it was kind of like how we first got going. Cause we were like, this will be a piece in this larger network. Tell me about your co-founder. Um, so Philip Armstrong um, is my co-founder. He's currently the COO of Otis. He is from Houston and is, um, I think, one of the greatest political minds I've probably come across. We met freshman year of college. We actually ran. I was freshman class president. and He was actually my campaign manager when I ran. He was on the slate as well. Um, and so we've always kind of been bonded through that. And so he, you know, he's also he also went to General Assembly for software school. So he's a software developer as well. Like I said, we both share their fire for liberal politics and just trying to create real solutions in the space. Now, as we're in the space, we're just like, somebody has to figure this out, right? Like, we have to keep making better tools for this. Um, and so, yeah, but we've known each other since freshman year and software developer and also handles a lot of the business admin stuff for us as well. Partnerships are notoriously difficult to figure out who's in charge of what and to work together and like any relationship. Have you guys had any wisdom coming out of work these years of working together? I think we give each other a fair amount of grace. And I think that the thing about Votus is we started in law school. I clerked for a judge, a district court judge, the first year out of law school. And basically like for the first four to five years for the company it was more of like a part-time thing. And then around 2016, 2017, Phil and I both went full time. And I think when you go full time, it's a little bit more of the stressors there because when, you know, customers aren't rolling in or money isn't rolling, how do you, you know, how do you deal with each other, right? How do you come up with solutions and not, you know, destroy your friendship? We haven't really gotten a ton of fights. I mean, I think we're both logical people. So we know like when we need to find a customer, like we need to find a customer, like we need to get a deal. And and that's a lot of times it's my role. I pl- really play sales as a big thing of what I do. I think me and him accept that we're in a very hard space. And when you're an African-American entrepreneur, particularly in a space like political tech, we understand it's something driving us a lot more than just like wanting to be cool or wanting to like make a lot of money. Like we do want to make money and we want to have a huge impact more importantly, but we're about the space and we're dedicated to the problem. Um, and I think that's something we found. I mean, I think there was one moment where we were applying for something we thought we were going to get it and we were kind of running low on money and like it didn't happen. And I remember the next day, Phil and I just sat in a room like in pure silence, like cause there was nothing to say, like there was nothing to say, but it was also like, this is not the moment to be like, rah, rah, like we're going to rise through. It's just like, you just kind of sit through it. And then it's like my dad says, like you always remember the sun comes up the next day. And I think, We've always had a mutual respect for each other and just an understanding that 
you know, civic tech is not for the weak. Entrepreneurship is not for the weak. It's not for, you can't get too high, cannot get too low. We just had to learn that through time. And I will say one thing about Phil I admire is that he is is really as steady as they come. Like the guy is like super steady. I can get, I can get a little hype. Like I bring the energy and I think sometimes you need that, but Phil is like, it takes a lot to get a rise out of him. You know what I mean? And when you do, you'll be surprised. And so I think that that balance also kind of worked for us. They talk about a startup as it's a company in search of a business model that'll work. Yes. Yes. You know, occasionally that's clear from the outset, but a lot of times it takes some getting to know a market and understanding what's missing. What's been your path towards sort of, I don't know, finding product market fit, as some people call it. I think the best arc I can give you really starts around 2016, 2017, which is, you know, I'm clerking and I'm thinking about, am I going to do this full time, blah, blah, blah. And then we kind of had this idea. We got we got a really good CTO. I was able to recruit a really good CTO, which is one of the things I think I do bring is able to team build. And we were going to build an app for elected officials to talk directly to their voting districts. And we were starting on the local level. And we actually almost got a city contract in Memphis, Nashville, and Chattanooga. And it was like this really terrible thing where like, like we presented in Memphis and we had like a contract, it was gonna be like a $50,000 pilot and we get to present and like, I'm hearing critiques I've never heard from the politicians. It was like what they had said to me before was the total opposite. And so we strike out in Memphis, we don't get a contract and in Nashville, we get like two of the top people to sign off. And that doesn't work. And then in Chattanooga, where we also got a contract, six of the nine councilmen who voted for us lost their reelection the following month. Ah. It was really one of the lowest points. One that taught us if we're going to have this at the time, we we're like, we have a business model where we work for governments. And we're like, well, that's not the best name because obviously getting a government contract is something that is extremely difficult for an early stage company. My CTO at the time said, well, we're trying to create this app, which obviously is very hard and getting people on the app. He was like, why don't we just mine social media data, public social media data to figure out what people are talking about and use that social listening, essentially. And so we went from trying to create our own platform or generate these conversations to just looking at the conversations as they come as a whole. That kind of shifted us to more where we are now. But then what happened was, is that you start meeting with political organizations and you're like, oh, we want to do social media analytics. And some of them are like, we don't even have people to run the social media. Can you do that first? And so our first contract was with the CBC actually here in D.C. It's like after all the app stuff had failed and we started getting into social listening, they were like, yeah, we'll pay for the social listening, but we'll also pay you to basically like manage our entire 2018 like midterm digital program with like a couple other couple other organizations. And so it was kind of this start of like, oh, we had this idea for an app that's clearly not going to work. And then trying to meet the campaigns where they are, you realize that like they need so much more support and infrastructure before they can even get to like really use something like social listening or use this high end SaaS. And so one, which is extremely frustrating, right? You're like, why is this? Why are we, you know, four months outside the election and we're about to kick all this up? But it also for us was like, okay, we can run all their stuff, but let's use this as a learning opportunity to figure out where are some like untapped opportunities. It's a way for us to make some money. Thank God. It was like I said, you also said you worked with the CBC. 
So, and, th- and that's and that's a company, we, that's an organization we still work with to this day, and that's been a really good relationship. But I think it was, I think if I could go back in time, I would tell myself like, stop worrying about your idea. Like, you want to do an app and all this, and while it's theoretically great, you have to meet the market where it is. And I think you, what you said was completely correct is that you're really in search of a product market fit. And once we started thinking through that, I think that's when we started having our most growth because then we were like, it's not about what our idea is. It's about, can you find the hole, right? Find the hole you need to fill. And so I think that's, that's been a big help. What will someone pay you to do? I remember, you know, I started a software company some years before you in the space and, and started in 97. And I was trying to help democratic fundraising firms. And one of the things I ended up doing was I found out they needed the RAM upgraded in their computers or, you know, like they needed help with the network in their office or, and then I made relationships with them by, by trying to be helpful. And then they were willing to use my database because they trusted this uh, young man who had helped them with some other problem, you know, it was very bootstrapped and it was very incremental, but uh, in the long run, it worked out pretty well. Tell me about other steps along the way as you went from, you know, picking up the CBC, that work to, you know, now what has happened as you went forward? We're trying to figure out where can we do with this social listening thing, right? Because like some people will pay us for, but most people don't have enough. But I think one of the big, the big things for us is that we started getting with customers that did have that infrastructure and did have that complete funding. So we started working with the D trip, which is probably our third or fourth big client, where with them, what we were doing was actually DMing people on Twitter. So we started doing all this social listening stuff. And I'm starting to think, how can we use this social listening data? to actually have more meaningful engagement. I won't say I hate ads, but I hate our reliance on advertising in the political space. You know, I think I think we're leaving a lot of engagement on the table. And so I called the guy who was um, over digital at the time for the D-Trip and I was like, hey, what would you think about, you know, if we DM people on Twitter? And we DM people on Twitter and like people were like tweeting back, tweeting about it. Like random people were like, I just got to a DM from the D-Trib, like, oh, this is awesome. And some people were like Republicans. They were like, the algorithm doesn't work. You know, the digital team from the D-Trib was happy because it's probably the first time in the year that they're really getting a shout out. That was kind of the second lesson is that if you can get with customers that do have the infrastructure, right, that do have the infrastructure and the money, that's when you experiment and that's when you ideate, right? And I think that's something we don't do enough of in this space Like we need to be doing a whole lot of experiments in the off cycle, like as many as we can, because then when the actual cycle comes, we'll be ready. That's a cultural push that we'll constantly have. But I think the D-Trip thing was huge. We also worked with the Sierra Club where we um, did some more social listening. It was really more regional based in different stations, looking around what people were saying about Greta Thornburg and like they were doing this. uh, I think it was like this. I think it was like a renewable 360 campaign, but it was about this push they were using. And I think the one thing that taught me and kind of what social listening did expose me to was that there's a lot of power in the media. And oh, let me back up because I haven't talked about Trump and all this and how he weighs. So I predicted Trump was going to win in 2015. And why this is important is that I was looking at him on Twitter and looking at how like looking at how he was kind of taking over the information ecosystem and he was shaping these narratives. 
So as we got more into social listening, I become more curious and like, what role does the media play in kind of informing people's views around this? And I would notice that like something that might be on CNN trending one day was actually like a small story on Twitter two weeks before. Right. And just kind of understanding that there is this connection between this information ecosystem. I don't know if like as a as a party, we always understand that because, you know, ads are great, but there's like a lot of bots. There's a lot of like dark arts going on on the other side of the spectrum. Right. And, and how is that influencing the way people think? Because if you pump things out enough, these stories kind of become the narrative. So I think it was like, OK, social listening is great. Like we're getting this data. But people need to actually be communicating and engaging because that's the only way we're going to actually impact the narrative. I've been in a couple positions where, starting in maybe 2007, where people have pitched me different social listening technologies. So I'm aware there's a bunch of them. Commercial tools, you know, attentively was one that was in the political space that was sold to Blackbaud. And I interviewed Cheryl Conti, who's one of the founders of that on this show. Did you find that political enterprises were using other stuff for this? Or did it feel like they weren't using anything? What did the competitive environment look like for you? A lot of campaigns weren't using social listening. And I think the big reason is that they felt like it was really expensive and the return was not that great, which is part of the reason I was telling my CTO, like, you know, can we use the social listening to help another end because the social listening by itself one is limited because you can't like facebook is a walled garden so i can't really get a ton of data from facebook public data i can only really get a lot of data from twitter and maybe like reddit but then twitter is kind of considered this nuanced not real platform by some people in the political space so they're gonna like turn their nose up when you can only give them twitter you know i think the cost is really heard one company like Crimson Hexagon, I heard there was like $25,000 a month. That's a crazy amount of money for a social listening platform, right? Especially when you're just getting it off of Twitter. A lot of organizations would either didn't see the use of it because they thought it was too expensive. And even if it wasn't as expensive, there is seriously limited just by the platform. We still think it's valuable, but like, I actually always say this, and I don't know if people agree with this, but I don't think people want data. They want products that use data. The more I talk to people, nobody really wants like 50 spreadsheets. They want to use data to like tell a story or they want to use data to like enhance their communication. Right. And so my thing is like we have to use social listening for something else because social listening in and of itself, I don't think is 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 as powerful or in the way the market is currently constructed. They don't derive enough value from it. Would you say you turned into a services company? Yeah. And I would say we're still turning into a services company because every once in a while, not every once in a while, but we still get decent requests for social listening. Like we just did a project with like Facebook Reality Labs, which was us analyzing it. And what we found to make social listening really valuable, we had to really like analyze it and give you like a data report with like key assumptions and key findings, which is not scalable, right? Like if you want to build, that's not a scalable way to build a tech company, but it is a way to make some money. So we still offer that here or there, but for us, we're definitely turning more into a services-based company, which is, you know, I think where the, the most value is going to be for us going forward. How did you land these various big name clients like the Sierra Club and the DCCC and so on? How, how do they come to you? 
before the pandemic, it was really a lot of good networking, right? Like people will hear, oh, like you're doing, like it's not, the thing is, it's not a lot of people doing this work still. It's not a lot of people in political technology. It's not a lot of people, particularly that look like me, that are doing it or social listening. So when you tell people what you're doing, they'll usually think of someone to connect you to. For example, we got connected with a pollster named Hit Research. That's how we worked with the Sierra Club. And then with Facebook, we worked with a creative agency called Ghostnote. And they were like, we need a research partner. You guys can provide this for us. So a lot of times it's about partnering with these different organizations. And you don't usually go like, I didn't go to Facebook Reality Labs like, oh, like we need this. But there's not a lot of people doing technical services. So not a lot of people know how to do social listening, like sentiment analysis. So you can, by talking, you can get connected with some of those people. And even like with, the D trip, I never forget. I went to a happy hour and I tell this guy what I do, and he's like, Oh, do you want a contract with the D trip? And I was like, Yeah, I do. And I think he's like joking or like, and it actually turned into three months later a contract with the D trip. So I think what most people miss is that the opportunities, they take a while to form. So I might meet someone, but it's going to take two to three months for something to actually manifest, maybe even longer. So I think understanding why you have to like really hone the relationships um, and figure out why you, you know, why you work. And so, I mean, you know, I think that's, that's a big part of it. Did you guys raise money at the outset? Did you raise money along the way? So when we were building the app in 2016, we definitely did some family and friends rounds. And for a while we were really trying to raise even more money. Like we did talk to a VC in 2016 who chose not to invest in us because they claimed Facebook was going to take over the political space digitally. And we said, if that happens, it will not be a good thing. It was like the funniest thing because like we were ended up being so right because literally like two years later, you had like Cambridge Analytica, but we did try to raise and it became like really clear that that was really hard. And I think it was like, you know, let's actually try to get some customers and, and gain some traction. And I think, that really changed my perspective because once we started working with people and I was like, oh, like this app wasn't going to work because these people don't even have someone to manage the social media. Like, why are we going to start a new platform? Once we stopped fundraising and started focusing on more revenue generation, that was that was a big thing for us. And, and, and again, I think this is before like before HGL and like some of these other funders, there wasn't a lot of interest in civic tech. I mean, I had a lot of investors say, oh, it's civic tech. I'm not interested. And that would just be the end of the conversation. It was recently announced that you did become part of the new cohort with Higher Ground Labs, which you just mentioned. What happened there? Did you decide to apply? Did they come after you? How did that work? Yeah, well, we actually applied in 2019 and got pretty close. Um, this is before we did any work with the D trip. It was like really early for us. And then um, we applied this time and we were able to get in. And I mean, we're just really excited because I think for us, we're now looking for the right partner. And I think HCL is one, I don't get any type of like predatorial vibes from them, right? Like there are a lot of VCs out there now that you have to be, have your eye on. And I think the other side of it was, um, they're going to catch you to people in the space. And I think that's really what we needed. So we were able to apply and we're fortunate enough to be a part of this, part of this fourth cohort. And now over these next two to three months, you know, we're just going to be refining our product and prep of the demo day, you know, obviously trying to get as front as many people as possible. Have you built a team beyond you and your co-founder? What does the company look like? Yep. So it's me, um, my co-founder, Phil. Our CTO is a guy named Jernell Cochran, who 
I'm a big fan of Janelle's. He um actually started a company called Civic Hacker. So he was someone who was all into like the civic tech stuff from more of a civic perspective. He didn't really do any political clients, any like campaigns, really like like working in like, for example, helping schools measure their air quality, things like that. But he's, you know, full stack developer, um, really smart guy. And we were able to get connected around 2016. And so he's been a part of our company since then. And I mean, like I said, we've grown a lot together and we have a front end developer um, as well named Maurice Wingfield, um, who handles all our front end stuff. And we're going to be adding on a data analytics person and a back end engineer here over the next couple months. So I'm excited to expand that team out. So what is it you're selling? I'm not entirely clear yet. Who is an ideal client for you and what do they purchase? So right now what we have is supports the communication platform with really right now two key features. You can upload offline data and we're able to actually generate um, messages to social handles from the people that you uploaded in the data. So for example, if you have people who are trying to, you know, if you want to message people on Twitter or you want to message people on Facebook, you would upload this list. We'll give so your you list might be your, your membership of your organization or your right. donors or your donor your volunteers or something. And then you can enhance that list with social media handles, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Just trying to be clear here. Is that just basically a match and it goes back into whatever system they're using or do you provide them a system for communicating out to those people? So they'll take the list, we'll essentially enrich it with those social handles and then they'll do what we call a campaign. So they will actually DM them on Twitter. Like for example, one campaign we're working with, they wanted to get basically get a list of all the influencers they could that were on Twitter that were like connected to their campaign and then DM them all at once on Twitter as a way to like get people to share stuff and things like that. And you can also do something somewhat similar with Facebook where people that engage on your post, right, you can message them. And so the idea is that like, you know, if you're targeting people with like targeted ads or whatever, you kind of know who you're going to have engaging on the post. So then engaging with them through Messenger, through Facebook. Where do you go from here? What do you build technologically? What do you build for services? And where do you take the company? There are a few features that we're really, we're really going to be working on here. The first one is really a universal inbox. So with us, we want you to actually have like real conversations with these people on social. Like that's kind of where we feel like a lot of the value is. So if I DM, you know, a thousand people one day and 300 reply back, we want to pull that data into our platform. And you can actually see like more than just the social handle. I know who this person is because they're connected to this list that I just uploaded, right? Using that to have like real conversations with people through social. And then also figuring out how we can bring in that social listening aspect. I mean, I don't want to give away like too much, but I think that there's a way we can use the social listening to kind of help you figure out like, what are people talking about in real time? And why can't you interject yourself in conversations on social? Why can't you message people who are saying positive things about you in real time on social, right? So if I have people talking about, oh, I want to vote for Val Deming, she's the best. If you DM'd her, that person, they would probably be blown away by the fact that like I was talking about you and you reached out to me directly, right? That type of rich engagement is kind of what we're trying to go. Even on Facebook, it's like, I might get a thousand comments on a post, and I don't say anything to those thousand people. I don't send them a message. I don't like the comment. Like 
And that's a thousand, like, you know, it was, when we worked at the CBC, we had 33,000 post engagements from voters in Georgia on like posts we had pushed. And I was like, what if we sent a message to all 33,000 people? And they probably have never received anything from the CBC ever. But it would be the first time they did. And like I said, who knows what type of rich engagement you can unlock. And so that's kind of like where we're going is figuring out how can we surface the right information to you, the relevant information, whether it's someone talking about a certain topic, someone engaging on your post and turning that into like real political power and building a real relationship with that person. Because I think, you know, ads are great. And I think great content is really important, but it's really the starting point. If I make great content that gets a ton of people reacting to my posts, I should use that as a conversation starter, not as like the beginning and the end. You could have clearly taken your law degree and your clerking experience and moved into corporate law or public interest law. How do you feel about having left that behind? And why is this a good road for you, the one that you're on? Um, I think one, I'm a little bit crazy. I think you have to be a little bit crazy, right? it's really the title of your podcast. Like we're really in a battle for like the soul of the country. What are we going to do to solve this problem? Like, you know, I, I predicted Trump was going to win in 2015 and I'll never forget. I was talking to my judge at the time and I was like, Oh yeah. I mean, I was like, I think Bernie, I would kind of want to go for Bernie in the primary. Cause I think Hillary would lose to Trump. He was like, Bernie, you're crazy. Like everybody was telling me I was like crazy and like, that's not going to happen. And so now I was like, if I see this, I have to do something for it. And like, truthfully, I just love the space because I think that the difference with political technologists and I think a lot of other people in politics is that we have to be extremely solution oriented. There is no like political fog or like backroom smoke with this, right? Like either it's going to work or it's not, either it's going to help engagement or it's not. And it's like, if I'm going to be, what I realize is that I don't really want to be a politician, but I want to have a huge impact and I want to have some autonomy, right? And I think this is, this provided me that opportunity to be able to do that. That was my, actually my next question, because as a former politician, at least on campus, Another road for you, and maybe it's out into the future, is to run for elected office yourself. And that was clearly something you thought about early on. Is that off the table? Uh, off the table, I, I hate to say things are off the table. I just want to I just want to make sure America is in a stable place in 10 years. If we're if we're good and we're in a stable place in 10 years, then maybe I'll run. But I feel like, you know, right now, I just I just want us to win these next few cycles. It's so crucial. It's there's the stakes are so high. If we go back to sort of the dark side being in charge, God knows where we're going. Yeah, I mean it's 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 tough. And I think I mean I think the midterms are gonna be a challenge and I think twenty twenty four can be a challenge. I mean, look at climate change right now, what's going on up in Canada and the Northwest. We've got real issues. And I think for me, I've always if I did run for office, I always thought I would be running in Memphis and Tennessee is like so conservative right now, right? I'm like, who like who would I have to be to run? Like I couldn't even be myself in a lot of ways. Not right now, not New York. Not statewide, yeah. Yeah, not statewide. And so I think for me, it's like, you know, I'm able to kind of be in some of the highest spaces. I'm here talking to the the founder of NGP Van. I think I'm doing all right. I think I'm talking to the right the right people to come up with some right solutions. Because I think the one thing I will say about the tech space is that 
the awareness of it has grown. I think more people in politics in general now understand the importance of technology. So I think the opportunities will be greater going forward, you know, as we go to, to have a greater impact, to create cooler products. I think this is where I need to be. And if, you know, in five, seven years, things are going great and I get the bug to run, I'll run. But I think right now it's like, I enjoy being of service and, and the idea of disrupting is, is pretty cool. <laughs> why, why do you think Higher Ground invested in you? I mean, typically they don't go as often for services companies. There is a tech-enabled aspect to it. What do you think sold them on Lotus? Um, I think our experience in the space. I think there are a lot of people who might be technologists but never were in the political tech space. And I think that it's very different. And I think it might be hard for some people to get get used for that. You've put some time in on it already, right? And done some learning. Right, exactly. And I think for us, that I think that was a big thing, honestly. I think the fact that we put so much time in, we do have like a really good CTO. I think we can gain a lot from the exposure we get from HGL. And I think we understand that, like you said, you're kind of in search of the business model. We're really there in terms of like, there are people that want to use our product now that want to like, you know, get social media handles and message people on Facebook and Twitter. But I think we also understand the ecosystem enough to be on the lookout for those other opportunities to really take things up, you know, another notch. We shift to becoming really patient as a team. You know, at this point, it's like we got probably got three or four ideas that we're prototyping right now that will probably be done in the next week and a half that we're going to be getting out in front of people. And they're all related to different aspects of it, but we understand you've got to get that client buy-in and these organizations have to be able to operationalize this. That's something that we bring to the table that I think is going to be big in our success. I mean, one thing that's big right now is people are talking about how are we going to get people to opt into our channels? Because now SMS, all the regulations against SMS, there's so much third-party data. How do we turn it into first-party data? And that's another problem we're, we're starting to think about on our end is that there are probably some fairly simple nuanced solutions that could be implemented to even make that make it even better. Is there a question that I should have asked that I haven't? You definitely asked about the product and, and, and where we were with that. I, well, one thing I, I guess I will bring up, and I mean, you kind of asked this question, but I'll to kind of give some more feedback. As far as like where Votus is going and I think the future of this space, one thing I find to be really interesting right now is um, – Democrats don't have the scale and level of like private group conversations that we see in the Republican Party. And that is something that I've been kind of talking about that no one seems to like necessarily latch on to. But like if you notice, the Republicans have these collections of like apps, right, that they're using to have these like small group conversations. And we're not having those. And I think that's another thing Votus is kind of interested in, in figuring out how can we help these organizations manage it? Why doesn't each campaign have their own Discord channel? Like, that would be a great way to engage people. Right? I mean, I think it would, but it's not. But I think part of it is because they don't know how to manage it. How do we use the data? And, like, one of the problems with this space is that if it doesn't fit within, like, kind of our KPIs or operational matrix, we just kind of discard it. Right. So I think that for us, with, like, say, when we say with Votus, is about, you know, talk and listen. That's how we build community. If there's anything I want to leave with, I think it's, it's really that. I think we need more community in our politics. 
right? It's particularly on the Democratic side because we want that, we need that. But I think the problem with us is that you got there's infighting in the party, there's this, there's that, but we really need a stronger sense of community because too many times we get caught in the uh, the culture wars and not really figuring out what are the things that's actually going to impact people's lives. Well, it's very interesting talking to you. It sounds like you have something you're building that you're excited about, and that's always good to see. Is there anything else you want to say? I think that's it. I think that um, I'm really excited to be a part of this conversation. I'm really excited to be kind of in this this class and this fraternity of political technologists. And I think, you know, I am not a techie. I have taught myself a little Python, but I'm not a software engineer by any means. But I think that, you know, I'm always willing to learn, always open to just see what's out there. And I think I said, it's great, great meeting you. And I've enjoyed listening to some of the talks on your podcast. And I'm, despite, you know, some, some negative things, still hopeful about what political technology can bring and what it can, you know, mean for America's future. Well, it seems like a good note on which to end. Thanks again for taking the time. That was Brandon Harris. Brandon is at votus.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.